It's a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. As he said, my name is Brian uh, Stegner, to be distinguished from Brian Alton. Has Brian Alton preached here before? You guys know who he is? Okay, it's a problem having two Pastor Brians in our church. Um, it, it, it's an issue. I get his email. He gets my email. Uh, I'm not from here. Uh, my wife is from here. She grew up in NDG, Montreal, uh, but I grew up in Oregon, and we met at Bible College in Saskatchewan, Briarcrest Bible College, went back to Oregon, had three kids, did youth ministry for many years, and then moved here in 2010 for church planting. And uh, along with Dwight Bernier and Jess Bernier, we founded Church 21 and, um, and have been here ever since. And of course, Reach Montreal is, is dear to our hearts, uh, having some little bits of its roots in what was sort of like the original Church 21 West Island that met at John Abbott. I'm trying to think if any of you remember those days setting up. We got one in the back. There we go. Yes, setting up at John Abbott. Um, so there's, there's uh, some, some family history there for us. Uh, specifically, I serve as the executive pastor at Church 21, which means even now, Pastor Dustin still emails me once in a while with like a legal or financial question, or sometimes just a photoshopped image that he's made of me with like a bishop's hat on my head. He thinks this is hilarious, and I get him like, okay, there we go. Um, but seriously, we, we've been blessed to be working with Dustin Raquel um, for the sake of the gospel in this city and, and count them as as dear friends, and I'm, I'm really privileged and happy to be able to provide a pulpit fill while they are away and in this time of, of mourning and lament. And it is fitting that we're in the midst of a study of Lamentations. I believe you guys were in Lamentations with us last week, right? Lamentations 5? Yes. Um, as we lament with them and as we lament as a society, um, we are living through unusual times hard times. And for many of us, we're carrying an, a, a greater amount of sorrow in our hearts in certain ways than we have at other points in our history and in our lives. And, you know, nothing quite as weighty as what was in Lamentations chapter 5 uh, last week that was pretty heavy and down. But still, for us, we're, we're carrying a weight, many of us. And some of us are doing so um, and not saying anything. We're carrying this, these sorrows privately. Um, in some cases, we may be carrying them even unconsciously, that we're not really willing to acknowledge in ourselves uh, the lament that we're experiencing. And so during this series, it's been our intent to try to sit in this lamenting, just to sit in it and to feel, um, feel it out without, without moving out of it too quickly, which is our, our temptation, to kind of explore its depths in a way that is not normal, in, in modern church, it's not something we're accustomed to doing or, or talking about, and, but it's been good. It's been good for us, I think, to sit in this. Um, but to do so, we've had to fight that temptation to prematurely leave lament and run towards the hope of the gospel. Uh, but last week, we began to see the light at the end of the tunnel. We began moving out of lament, and then this morning, we're turning like a hard corner, and we're really getting into joy, because this sermon series is titled Lament and Joy, and we're doing joy this morning. And so um, in so doing, we're going to actually leave the book of Lamentations, because there's not much joy uh, to be found for us in there. Uh, instead, we're going to go to the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, um, or your phones, as long as they're charged up all the way, 
um, you can open your Bible apps to John chapter 16, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 16 through 24, and then we'll be going a few other places in Scripture, but that'll be our main uh, passage this morning. So that's where we're going. Let me just pray for us again, and then we'll get to work on this. Uh, Jesus, we want to honor you uh, this morning as we gather in your name. Spirit, we invite you into this space to be with us, to make the opening of the word meaningful, uh, to bring it to life uh, in our hearts. We ask that you would uh, be at work in this room, that your gifts would be used, uh, that our hearts would be shaped, and and we come out looking a little bit more like Jesus. Uh, We ask that you would do this, uh, both for our joy and, and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the, in the book Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis writes about his life. Has anybody read this book before? It's kind of heavy. Um, and uh, in it, he talks about three childhood experiences in which each of which he senses something he calls joy. And it would be laborious to go through all of those. But just to, as he finishes the telling, he, he continues with a reflection on joy. And I'm just going to read this quote. The reader who finds these three episodes of no interest need read this book no further, for, in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. For those who are still disposed to proceed, I will only underline the quality common to the three experiences. This is experiences of joy. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. I'll read that bit again. It's an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which here is a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it, joy, will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally be well called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind that we want. I doubt whether any person who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Lewis paints a a poignant picture of this thing that he calls joy, that it's it's something that once you've experienced it, you, you want it again. You want to experience it again. But it's not at all like experiencing happiness or just pleasure in the sense that it's something deeper and richer and inaccessible. It's not something that we can hold onto, that we get this fleeting sense of it and then we're left with a pining for more, that we want to experience more of it. And that inability to have complete and consistent access to it turns it into a kind of grief, that, that there's something that we've tasted that is so good and yet we can't have it just yet or perhaps we've had it and it's been lost. To quote Lewis further, joy was always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. So in a sense, it's a strong feeling, but it's something out of remove, either from the past or the future, and something that you can't, you can't grab onto, but you can catch, catch glimpses of it or whiffs of it in the air. And we're left with this sort of wholesome Longing. How does, this, how does this joy that he's talking about fit into our understanding of the world that we're in? Well, biblically, in the age that we live in, we are suspended between two points in time, both of which where heaven and earth were touching, were united. In the garden in the past and the garden remade in the future, that we exist between these, these two times where everything is right. 
And, and in a sense, echoes of joy come to us in the middle here from those two places on the end. And they fill us with longing. And, and, and they're substantive enough to almost be like discovering an appetite that we didn't have and, and, and is suddenly briefly filled. And in that moment, everything that's misaligned in us sort of clicks into place. That kind of joy transcends our immediate situation, that the reality that it, that it comes from, that reality places over top of our reality and just changes our perspective on our sorrows. It repositions our perspective. Our griefs and our sorrows and our lament become smaller and take on a different light when we are, in a sense, raised on the wings of joy. What is tragic becomes bittersweet, and, and what is hard becomes heroic. And all followers of Jesus, I think, have experienced this on some level, even if you didn't realize it or you didn't take note of it. Think to yourselves for a moment, has there been a moment in your life where you've experienced this kind of joy? It's, it's often preceded by a sense of like eternity coming closer, your vision lifting and, and expanding and being able to see more clearly and more differently. And then after you're left with uh, a sort of a peace of God which surpasses all understanding, as Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 7. That we're not just surprised by joy, the way C.S. Lewis says, that we're, we are marked by it when we experience it. We're bruised by it, but in a way that we wish to be bruised again. This is what we could call high joy. High joy, transcendent joy. And there's, of course, a more like earthly, regular joy that we would just use that word normally for, uh, sort of a, a, a temporal joy. And this we could call low joy. And often we experience these two things mixed together in ways that are hard to untangle. But all this to say that I, I think that, I believe it is mostly this high joy that Jesus speaks about in our passage uh, that we're going to look at this morning. So again, look with me at John chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you can open them at this moment. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. In a little while, you will see me no longer. Jesus speaking to his disciples. And again, in a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. I'm always comforted when the disciples uh, struggle with Jesus. Uh, that they don't know what he's talking about. Sometimes we don't know what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are saying? What you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Jesus is like, okay, so you don't know what I'm talking about. I will tell you. And then he responds with something that's perhaps even more cryptic, right? Jesus, so predictable. Um, thankfully, we know what Jesus is talking about. His impending death. Impending death. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. There will be a moment where all is lost. You'll be confused. How did this happen? Grief is overwhelming. Despair is sort of filling the horizon. The disciples are, are, lose all of their bearing. And the world rejoices because Jesus was a pain. Jesus was always changing things. He was meddling. And if Jesus could go away, then the rulers of the day would be really happy. The meddler is gone. Things can go back to the way that they're supposed to be. Jesus continues, resuming partway through verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I imagine many of you in this room, some of you in this room, have given birth before. And some others of you have been in the room while this giving of birth was happening. And um, if you have, I mean, we, we have three kids, as I mentioned. They're all teenagers now. But a long time ago, I was in a hospital room with my wife, and she was in labor with our first child, um, Caitlin. And, you know, you, you just, you're in there, and you just you don't really know what's going to happen. You know, you don't really know what to expect. And there's like, they make you take a class. You know, you're in a classroom. They try to prepare you, but they can't prepare you. You know, because you're in that room and your wife looks physically like a grenade in, 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 that's about to go off, you know. And in the next room over, because they, they put all the women who are birthing, there's a whole wing. It's all happening all around you. It's not just you and your spouse. It's like there's birthings happening. And the woman in the next room decided to give birth naturally with none of the medicines that, that blunt the, the sorrow. And it was like an exorcism was happening in the next room, an exorcism that wasn't going well. And, you know, you're just, you're sweating this. You're looking at your wife. You're like, oh, man, I don't know. Like, a class cannot prepare you for this. Maybe someday they'll invent, like, a VR thing that you can put a helmet on, but then no one will ever want to have children, so that <laughs> will be a problem. But all this to say that, that birth is a, a crazy thing. There is a measure of sorrow in it, but also such joy, right? Such joy, enough joy, a type of joy that the sorrow is overwhelmed by the joy that follows. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about in this passage, a joy that doesn't demand that we give up sorrow, uh, that sorrow and mourning and grief are somehow inappropriate, or that Christians shouldn't ever be sad or depressed or struggle emotionally. No, this is the kind of joy that says it's okay to have sorrow. It's okay to have um, these kinds of feelings because the kind of joy that is available in Christ trumps our sorrow. It triumphs over it. And it's a joy that cannot be taken from you. Continuing in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now as is true with many sections of scripture, there are several sort of layered meanings uh, in it. And so uh, we will spend some time peeling these layers back to attempt to not miss anything from this scripture. Um, the first is the contemporary uh, meaning and, and the most obvious and what we've already touched on. That Jesus is saying, I'm going to be dead you are going to be sad, but I am going to come back and your joy will turn, your sorrow will turn into joy. You're going, to, you're going to not understand what's happening and there's going to be a big twist at the end and you will have joy. Uh, but secondly, this is not just the joy of receiving uh, Jesus back from the dead. It is also the implications of the resurrection, that the, that the veil of death that we all face and, and don't really want to look in the eye, because it's a source of sorrow to us, that this veil has been pierced by the resurrection of Jesus, and new vistas of possibility are open now to the disciples, to us, that we begin to see the hints of salvation through Jesus, through this little space that he has opened up for us, that by trusting in Jesus, by, by believing in this finished work, that we can go on to new life as well, that this is a free gift to all who would ask. This is the good news of the gospel is hinted in here. 
Um, thirdly, though, that Jesus was coming back, but only briefly. And I think of this like, if you've ever seen on YouTube, where they have those videos of the people in the military, like the dad comes home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and surprises his family. They don't know he's coming and he's there. And the children are like, daddy, you know, it's like, if you've seen these, you're like already getting weepy because apparently you could just wreck yourself emotionally watching these. I stay away from this. I have enough, there's enough emotions in my house with teenage girls. I don't need to watch YouTube videos of people crying, but, but there's this sense of like, yay, he's here. But then it's always like, oh, but he's got to ship out in a few days. And so their joy is mixed with this sort of, it's a bittersweet thing because it's temporary. That Jesus is going to be back, but it's temporary. It's just for this little period of time and then he's gonna be going away. That there's this bittersweet uh, relationship and we share in that today along with the disciples, this bittersweet thing that we have with Jesus that he played the, the knight in shining armor, that he rescued us, that he slays the, the dragons of sin and Satan and death and 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 basically got engaged to us as the church. And then the wedding and honeymoon has been postponed for like 2,000 years. And now we're in this like long distance relationship with Jesus. And I, as a man, I always bothered me. I'm like, what are you talking about getting married to Jesus? I'm not, that's weird to me. Yeah, it's like, but just, it's a metaphor, okay? Like the Lord knows that as human beings, our strongest feelings are in this business of like courtship and marriage and you know every movie every book they always weave it in there's always a love story why it's the strongest feelings we have and so it's those feelings that the lord uses as an illustration of our relationship as the church with jesus but it's a metaphor you're not having to get married to jesus personally and so we're in this long distance relationship with jesus and i will make you i'll ask you to raise your hand who's ever been in a long distance relationship Okay, so you know the pain, right? It's not, I've ridden this horse a few times. Um, it, just even with my wife, Severine, like pre-courtship, officially, pre-engagement, pre-marriage, there was these stretches of absence, of long-distance relationship, long phone calls, you know, long-distance bills and things. This is pre-Zoom. There was no video internet. I'm older than I look. And, uh, and this is just this, it's this, it's a physical longing to be with your beloved that almost feels like an illness, right? It's, it's, it's painful, and yet there is an anticipation of being reunited, anticipation of joy. And it's this anticipation of joy is what motivated Jesus as he himself headed to the cross. Hebrews uh, chapter 12, starting in the middle of verse 1, he says, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was this joy that sustained him and likewise should sustain us. If we jump back one chapter in Hebrews to Hebrews 11, you have all these people who were sustained through torture, and death. And this points to a fourth layer in our passage in Gospel of John that more lament was to come, that there was more sorrow to come in this young church was going to experience persecution. And as you guys are well aware, if you've done reading on this, that the persecution that, that the church has experienced is greater even today, just numerically, than it has ever been. That this is a continuing experience of the people of God. We are very fortunate in, in our part in the world that we are not worried that armed men would come into this room at, at any given moment. Um, 
this is the reality for many places in the world, that the persecution of the church is an additional sorrow. Beyond waiting for our beloved to return and bring us to the Father, we also endure the brokenness of this world. And so in the New Testament, we see friends and family fleeing, being drug off to prison, and even put to death. Their newfound joy at Jesus' resurrection would again be mixed with sorrow. And again, this joy doesn't remove the sorrow, but it overcomes it. It overcomes it and changes the scale of our sorrow. It diminishes, it makes it smaller, less relevant, more bearable. And I think this is how the martyrs, if you've ever read like John Fox's book of the martyrs or other accounts of martyrs, I think this is the way that they could sometimes be tied to the stake. The flames are coming up and they would be singing. How is that possible? Because the, the heat of the flames couldn't compete with the heat of the flames of joy in their hearts by the spirit of God, the flame of heaven. How do we find this joy? How do we access it? We have no trouble accessing sorrow, right? It just finds us. How do we find joy? Well, despite Lewis's insistence that the high joy is inaccessible to us, low joy is certainly within our grasp. Uh, For this series, one of the books that Dwight had recommended the guys preaching read is called The Other Half of the Church, and they deal with, it deals with like uh, theology and neurology, and in this, the authors, Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, they, they talk about how the study of neurology points to joy as the fuel of our brains. That joy is what they're discovering is joy is actually what's fueling our brains healthfully. That's making our brains work uh, appropriately. And that we receive this joy when we, when we see love and acceptance on other human beings' faces in our presence. Not over a screen, unfortunately, so Zoom doesn't count, FaceTime, it just doesn't work with the studies they've done. You need to be in person to receive this. We receive joy from seeing people's joy and love and acceptance of our presence on their faces. And that this fuels our brains through all sorts of negative, emotional, and chemical states. So what this tells us is our starting point for joy is community. It's community. We need to be together. People, the family, the church, uh, city group. The love and acceptance we give and receive is a huge, huge source of joy. And that's why I think the Bible prompts us to not give up gathering in this way. We're in a season where gathering uh, feels more dangerous. It feels like there is uh, more risk involved in gathering. All of you chose to be here this morning. You, you chose it in a way that you, two years ago, you wouldn't have thought about it. Those of you who are watching this at home have, have chosen not to be here for perhaps reasons that are, are good. Maybe some of you have stayed home out of, out of fear. Um, the danger in that is that this is not, my love and acceptance of you over the screen is not going to feed your brain in the way that you would be if you were here. There's something special about being in person neurologically. And if the accepting and loving faces of our friends and our family and our church can transmit this kind of low joy into our brains, then what does the face of God transmit to us when he looks on us with love and joy and acceptance through Christ? It's the face of God that we receive that high joy from. This concept is riddled throughout the scriptures, but sadly is, is often lost in translation. And this was the other interesting thing that kind of pulled out of this book, The Other Half of the Church. Uh, the writers 
conjecture on this. They say, one reason for the lack of a coherent theology of joy is word choices translators make in some Bible versions. When translating the original language of the Bible, joy sometimes disappears in modern languages. We see it clearly in the Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, but it gets lost in translation. Example would be Psalm 89:15. Then NIV translates this, blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. In the Hebrew, in the light of your presence is literally in the light of your face. And this is not an isolated example. Over and over again, I have discovered the ne- neglected face of God. Isn't that interesting? How different that is. The difference between someone being present with you and someone looking at you with light in their face of love and acceptance and approval. This is an excellent reason why, when you study your Bible, to go a little deeper than just the English there. And you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. We have the internet. You know, software and things can help you dig a little bit deeper below the surface to see what's there. And it's not like the translators who are doing this work are trying to hide this from us. They're trying to make it I mean, the Bible is hard to read already, you know, and that's after they've smoothed over all of these bumps. So they're trying to make it easier, but it's, it's, it's sad and interesting to see that sometimes there's little bits like this that are lost, that the face of God shining down upon us is, is sort of covered over for ease of reading. It's this, this idea of, the, of God's face shining on us that is the root of the blessing that we're very familiar with from Numbers chapter 6. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You guys have heard this before. This is a familiar blessing. And it's rooted in God's face shining upon us with love, acceptance, and approval in Christ. That his countenance, his look is upon us. So we, we receive low joy from the faces of others, our community and family and church around us. And this fuels our brain for emotional uh, health and everyday life, and so we should not neglect the gathering of the church. We should not neglect to gather together as God's people. We don't want. We should also not neglect uh, the faces of our family members. And sadly, we live in this unusual age, just in like the last 10, 15 years, where the screens in our lives are stealing our our countenance, our faces from our family members. They're everywhere, right? And uh, a generation of children are growing up without their, their parents' uh, gaze because their parents are looking at this instead, the smartphone. Um, it's, it, this is a real challenge for us. Um, they, they talk about the neurology, the impact of this, that is directly proportional to happiness. People say, oh, you know, studies show that Facebook makes you 50% less happy. It could just be the fact that Facebook is on a screen. It could just be the screen uh, that is impacting happiness. And, and mental health. What steps can you take to increase the amount of FaceTime? Not FaceTime, the, the application. You're like, I'm going to be on FaceTime all the time now. Bad choice of words. What can you do to increase the amount of face exposure that you have to your family members, to your friends, to your neighbors? Stare at people on the bus. You guys ride the bus? Everyone's down like this. Just stare at them. Give, give them your countenance in, in doses. You have to ease them into it, I'm sure. Um, how important is it that we stand as a people for the continued right to gather like this? It is not guaranteed. We have not always been allowed to do this. And, and there's a certain, not to be political from the pulpit, but there is a certain sense that we do want to try to defend our right to see each other's faces or at least each other's eyes uh, as much as possible. It's that important. 
So we receive low joy from the others around us. We can practice that. We can begin to build that into our lives. Um, even our own family, we are being intentional, more intentional about spending more time looking in each other's faces at meals uh, because of this preparing for this. I was like, oh, this is a problem. I can see the drift in our own family. So we're making changes. But we receive high joy from the, the face of God, not from others. And it, it leaves us with a peace that transcends all understanding, not removing uh, our lament, but reordering it. And of course, the face of God, indeed, as Lewis implies, is not on demand to us at all times. We can't be like, face of God, I need some joy. Let's see it, right? We can't demand it. We can't demand it. Uh, but the Bible does indicate that those who seek will find and those who search will be rewarded, but it may require an investment of time. God's face is not cheaply acquired. Um, and in our, in our modern era of like fast food, and fast everything and short attention spans, we've maybe lost the art of pursuing the Lord over duration. Um, living bread is not fast food. It, it takes time. The Lord, the Lord is a person and, uh, and desires to be with us. And I believe that there is a reward, not a reward, but there is, there is something available to us uh, when we give the Lord a duration of time. And to even catch a glimpse of his face and to see his love and approval and to just get almost a taste of heaven ahead of time here and now is so life-giving. It, it, it empowers us. It trumps our sorrows. So this wind of, 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 in a sense, of high joy sort of blows back at us from the future, from the, the garden, from heaven, because it is the place that we will again see the face of God and all the time. All the time. The experience of heaven. People are always like, what's heaven really going to be like? You know, you read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's like this thick. You know, you get all the information. But we really don't know what heaven will be like. But one thing that is clear is that the experience of heaven will be centered on seeing the face of God. Revelation chapter 22 uh, says, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And so in this picture, we have both, we see both the face of God and then also there's this sense of light that he is our light. Now, not so much today, but normally on a day when it's sunny out, you know, you wake up, you kind of look to see what it'll be like and you open the shades or whatever and it's just a night, you can tell, it's just gonna be a nice sunny day. What does that do to your spirits? I mean, you just feel better, you know, on a sunny day, which is conversely why people have like depression in the winter from like light depression or whatever. I had to get one of those sun lamp things because I spent time in Saskatchewan, which if you didn't know where that Bible college is, it's like the brightest spot on, in North America. I looked it up. It's like never not sunny. It's very cold in the winter, but it's always sunny. And that messed me up bad. I got addicted to the sunshine, even though I'm from Oregon and it rains a lot. And, um, and so now it's like to not have that sun. Imagine in heaven where God's himself, his countenance has replaced the need for the sun. That you're walking in the light that brings you joy the way the sun brings you a little bit of joy. God's face will bring you complete joy. That is what it will be like walking in heaven. That we as human beings were created to walk in the light of God's face and to reflect it back out into creation. 
And we do, we live that imperfectly now uh, because the world is still a broken place and we, our sanctification is incomplete. We are in process, but we get glimpses of this. So we're living in this sort of like already not yet messed up place, but the day is coming when what we do in part, we will do in full and it'll be amazing. And then the Lord will wipe away our sorrow completely. His joy won't just overcome our sorrow, it will remove it. Jumping back one, ver- one uh, chapter in Revelation to chapter 21, it says, behold, uh, the dwelling place of God is with man and he, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be, them, be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Joy. Joy is the future destiny of all who trust in Jesus. That is our eternal future. Um, C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Serious business of heaven. Um, I don't know if you guys have tracked with us through the entire Lament series or if you guys were doing something different at the beginning. You have? Okay, so we've been four weeks in Lament and uh, we have one more to go. And the danger in this subject this morning by switching to joy and even next week as we look at love, that we leave, we begin to leave behind what we learned when we studied lament, that we leave that behind and we forget everything we talked about and we go back to feeling like when you come to church, you gotta put on your happy face, right? You gotta go back just the old way that we used to do things, going back and putting on our happy face. When you gather with your city group, when you're meeting with, I don't know if you guys do change group or the smallest groups, the accountability type groups, that even there, you put on your mask, you put up your walls, perhaps even with your your own heart. You hide what's really moving in your heart because maybe you feel like there just isn't a place for your pain, for your sorrow. And so it doesn't get processed. Um, Jordan Weeks, has he preached here? Jordan Weeks, yes. So he's preaching in the other locations today and then I'm going to do the South Shore this afternoon. And we were comparing notes as as we wrestled with this concept of joy. And as I'm going through some of his stuff, he had this section that he had written that was so poignant that I want to use it as we close this morning. Um, I want to read it to you, his, his words. If you get anything from this series, it is that it is not wrong to grieve. It's not a sin. In fact, it's important that you grieve and lament the sin and suffering of this life well. To grieve the news of loss and death well. Pay attention to your feelings Don't repress and ignore them. Express all of your unprocessed, raw, and theologically confusing emotions to God. Be patient, and he will meet you there in that place of humility and vulnerability. He listens and loves. Lamentations as a book is evidence of God doing this, meeting us in our lowest places. And so let us lament and do it well. Don't expect life as a disciple of Jesus to be rainbows and butterflies, health and wealth. It's not that God doesn't care about those things. He just doesn't promise them right now. Rather, he promises tribulation. And so this is the wrong expectation and it, it will set you up for disappointment and failure. So Jesus says you will have sorrow now and, you, and remember that it's in contrast to the world which will rejoice. So what Jordan is saying uh, to us here is this is, is important for us to remember as we As we gather as a church, we then scatter on mission back out into the city, back out into Montreal to reach Montreal, as your guys' name so helpfully reminds us, uh, that this thinking uh, powers our mission. 
The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet in its fullness. And as we do this, as we scatter, we scatter to be salt and light. And for salt and light to be effective, we have to go into places that are rotting and dark. And sitting in the rot and the dark sucks. It's, there's sorrow there. And that's, it's part of our mission. It's part of our calling. Jesus left us here to do this hard thing. And so we need this joy. We need this joy to overcome our sorrow. And we need our community together to be able to get that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, Jesus said. So like Jesus, let's look to the joy that's to come. Try to catch a glimpse of it each day. And that will carry us through many trials. It's ultimately this joy that God uses to woo us into relationship with him. And it's this joy that powers our mission. It's what will carry us through to the end. It's what carried Jesus through the cross and into glory. I'll invite the the worship uh, people to come back up. I want to end us with this. Again, just this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Lord, we ask this. We are a fickle uh, people. We have many of the things that we look to for happiness and pleasure, and we, we give up so easily on pursuing joy. Lord, cause us to see one another's faces and to see your face and to experience true and authentic joy. Let us work um, at the mission that you have given us, anticipating the joy that's set before us, as Jesus did. Lord, we ask this. And that you would cause our hearts to be okay with the sorrows that you have called us to bear. And that we process them together, not be defeated by them, but that you would triumph over them through your joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.